0: Welcome back to The Pacific Century. I'm Misha Oslin, a fellow at the Hoover Institution, joined by my colleague, John Yu, a visiting fellow at the Hoover Institution and a professor of law at the University of California, Berkeley. As you know, The Pacific Century looks at the future of China, America, the Indo-Pacific, and the fate of the world. And today, we are honored to have with us someone who is literally and metaphorically, at the tip of the spear in projecting American power and defending American and liberal interests in the Indo-Pacific, and that is General Kenneth Wilsbach, the commander of Pacific Air Forces. I'm going to welcome the general in just a second, but to give you a bit of background on General Wilsbach, uh, he is the Air Component Commander for U.S. Indo-Pacific Command, the warfighting command for the United States in Asia. He's also the Executive Director of the Pacific Air Combat Operations Staff at Joint Base Pearl Harbor-Hickam in Hawaii, Pacific Air Forces, or PACAF as it is known, is responsible for Air Force activities spread over half the globe in a command that supports more than 46,000 airmen who serve principally in Japan, South Korea, Hawaii, Alaska, and Guam. Uh, General Wilsbach was commissioned in 1985 as a distinguished graduate of the University of Florida's ROTC program. He earned his pilot wings in 1986. He has had uh, experience in Korea Uh, in uh, United Nations Command, uh, the Air Combat, Air Component Command of the Combined Forces Command. He was commander of the 7th Air Force, which is part of Pacific Air Forces in South Korea, and he is a pilot who has flown more than 5,000 hours in the F-15C, the F-16C Reapers, and the F-22. He also flew 71 combat missions in operations Northern Watch, Southern Watch, and Enduring Freedom. General Wilsbach, it's an honor to have you with us. Welcome to the Pacific Century.
1: Uh, thanks, Misha. really appreciate the, that introduction, and um, it's, it's a real pleasure to be here. As I, as I told you um, earlier, um, I, I have a heart for the Hoover Institute, and it's just an amazing institution, and um, it's, it's um, almost surreal that, that I'm here uh, that you're interested in me being a guest and uh, it's, it's really fun to be here and uh, uh, share a few thoughts with you.
0: Well, there's actually few people in, in all honesty that we'd rather talk with more because it's, it's pretty easy. I'm, I'm based in Washington DC actually. So it's pretty easy whether you're in DC or you're in Palo Alto to have a, uh, a sort of metaphorical picture of, of the Indo-Pacific, a mythical picture, certainly an abstract picture because, because we're not in there, but I can tell our listeners, um, having had the pleasure of visiting uh, PACAF and, and visiting Indo-PACOM back then, PACOM uh, numerous times that the forward-based tip of the spear that, that you all represent. And that of course the, the subordinate commands uh, underneath you represent in Japan and Korea and the like uh, really don't get to dabble in, in the uh, uh, the, the the ways that we can sort of think a little bit about uh, being, being cute with what's going on in the Indo-Pacific. You're actually there and you're facing the challenges, the realities, both working with, with partners, dealing with adversaries, those who who are not interested in stability and those who are committed fully to stability. So, your insights are really the ones that I think we need to hear, particularly here in D.C., but but also in Palo Alto and, and, in particular, General. Um, there are few in the uh, the Air Force, but in the U.S. military, who have had as much experience as you have had in the Indo Pacific. You've you've actually had two extended tours there. Uh, the first one was from 2008 to 2013. Uh, then you got a three year break, and then you went back in 2016. So you're on your fourth year in the second tour. So you you actually have for for the military a, a longitudinal perspective. And I'm just wondering if you could tell us, in your own view, how you've seen the security environment change in the dozen years or more that you've focused on the Indo-Pacific?
1: You bet. As a matter of fact, um, I did have two extended tours, but um, in total, I've had nine. Whoa. Uh, so two two times in Alaska, two times in Japan, uh, four times in Hawaii, um, on various staffs uh, here and on, on the island, uh, as well as uh, one in Korea. Um, so um, quite a bit of... An experience uh, from the, the very, very tactical um, all the way up to the strategic, and so um, I do have um, a pretty extensive bit of experience uh, for this this part of the world.
0: I apologize, by the way, not knowing it was nine. We're gonna we're gonna fire our fact checker. That happens no, to be were wrong. So you are wrong
1: because some of the some of the assignments were, were um, shorter than others. Um, but, um, you know, I, I've, I've been out here um, quite a bit. And um, to get to the point of your question, though, of, you know, what's changed? So my first assignment was in 1993. Uh, and, uh, you know, the, the, the threats or the adversaries back then uh, were a lot of the same uh, players that we have today. Um, but, the, but the difference is. Um, the the security environment has changed uh, remarkably. Uh, Take North Korea. Uh, Back in 1993, uh, North Korea certainly wasn't uh, a nuclear power. Uh, They are today. Uh, China uh, was uh, relatively internal, and um, they hadn't necessarily um, started their a return to greatness uh, strategy uh, that I think everybody's familiar with and expanding out from, you know, their internal uh, borders from the first island chain to the second island chain uh, that we talk about frequently. Um, and then the modernization of uh, the uh, Chinese Communist Party military um, has really um, advanced, especially in the last 10 years. Um, and so that security uh, environment has changed. Uh, in that, uh, we used to um, have a significant overmatch uh, with respect to our military capabilities uh, versus theirs, whether it be uh, China, uh, North Korea, and we haven't mentioned Russia yet, but um, they're they're also uh, um, also in the same category. Is the the overmatch? Um, has sh- has shrunk uh, over uh, over the years, uh, and so that that has uh, changed uh, the approaches uh, that we've taken uh, versus um, those adversaries in the theater.
0: So the uh, the question of of overmatch, you know, there's different ways to to try to calculate it, right? There, there would be tails, um, you know, how many planes we have and how many different places that are critical. I don't think anyone uh, would, would think that we are not the finest trained uh, air force in the world. Our, our men and women, our airmen are are extraordinary. A- have you seen that gap close as well? Meaning it's not just that we, we do have older fighters. You've flown, a lot of you've flown, uh, you've flown F-15s, you've flown 16s, you've flown the Raptors. So you've been uh, for a long period, I guess you didn't fly the F-4,
1: I've flown the F four.
0: Have you really? I
1: have I wasn't fully qualified in it, but I, I've actually flown it one time <laughs> from the front seat, uh, and uh, it's an amazing, amazing aircraft. And to think that uh, what uh, what the the Navy, the Marines, and the Air Force did with that airframe, predominantly in Vietnam, uh, was impressive because it's it was actually I found to be a difficult airplane to fly.
0: Interesting the. But, but, yeah, to our our current folks and and how they do in in your view. Uh,
1: We are so blessed in the United States Air Force to have uh, some of the finest young people (laughs) available in our country. Uh, And uh, they're motivated, they're smart, uh, they're innovative, innovative. you know, they've got a work ethic uh, that you know, just produces results. And so, uh, in, especially in, in my command, I really try to play to that strength of giving them you know, enough authority um, that, that really goes along with their responsibilities uh, to be able to take advantage of um, that innovation. And when you get assigned a duty, whatever that duty may be. Uh, whether it's you know, like like I was when I was a youngster, or being a fighter pilot or or, or something else, maybe it's in the medical community, maybe it's in communications, whatever that whatever it is. what what I'm looking for is leadership at every level um, to innovate your part of the task every day and to continually get better. And this um, constant improvement of remaking yourself as often as you can, uh, to make the most of your resources to get maybe some new resources um, and then to improve your tactics, techniques, and procedures with whatever you have, with those resources that you have to get the most out of it uh, is, is something that I stress um, weekly for sure. And then when we get together um, in our big groups, you know, we always have an extended session on uh, innovation. And then um, innovation is fantastic, but if at the at the lowest levels of your organization, if you don't have um, the authority to implement those uh, innovations, you really can never realize it. Um, but I can tell you, I can report that uh, we we are doing this in our command, and uh, you know we're seeing things that I could have never hoped uh, to have executed at the level that uh, we're executing now. Back when I was a, a young lieutenant or a young captain, um, what. What we could do back then compared to what we can do now is, uh, is really encouraging for me as the senior uh, airman in the Indo-Pacific theater of just how bright and talented um, our force is and how much they embrace uh, this you know, somewhat new um, responsibility and authority to innovate every day in, in whatever job that, that uh, you're assigned to do. And as you might imagine, you know, if, if you're a company and you have employees that um, are given, you know, this freedom, um, they're going to be excited about their jobs because they kind of they kind of write their you know they kind of write their own ticket, uh, so to speak, and they they get a chance to. Uh, really use their brain and use their talents uh, to to make their part of your company better. We, we we're doing the same thing in the Air Force, and so I am I'm, I'm very encouraged uh, that uh, we we still have um, that innovative spirit and uh, and the you know it really turns into uh, patriotism, right? Of trying to make our organization for our country the best that it can be every single day.
0: I want to I want to turn to the darker part of the picture uh, in a second, but I, I do want to say that for for those who maybe haven't uh, interacted as much with the Air Force, and I've been uh, privileged to to be able to do that from Washington, but also visiting uh, different different bases and and being involved in in uh, meetings and small groups and the like. Um, maybe it's because the Air Force is the youngest of the services. I mean, we, we now have Space Force, but you know that that's. It, immediately, yeah, now the second youngest, but you know, has been the youngest. Um, And, but it's the youngest also because the technology is the newest. I mean, you know, uh, we've been going to the sea for thousands of years. We've been fighting on land for longer than that. But, you know, the air domain is, is barely a century old at at this point. Um, And, and so for those who haven't actually interacted with the Air Force, I I just wanted to reiterate from a civilian and an outsider's perspective that everything you've said is, is exactly what I encounter. I I know all the forces are innovative and and my colleague HR McMaster will take me down if I don't if I don't fully you know admit that you know the army and, and the navy. But there is something really unique about the way that the air force innovates from the get go because everything is in many ways are still being tried. It's still being thought out uh, and and in an environment in which you've had, as you said, the um, the overmatch shrink so dramatically. You've had the near peer, if not peer, competitor rise so dramatically and yet build off of. Let's be frank, building off of our innovation, right? Stealth was ours, and now China's taking stealth. Um, bombers were essentially ours, long-range intercontinental bombers. China's taking that. Rockets, whatever you want. The, the fact is the, the, the PLA and the PLAF, that's the PLA Air Force, they didn't invent these things. We invented them. They got late developer benefits. So how do you look at that at that competition, how do you, first of all, let's start with the basics. How do you assess the Chinese threat in the air domain? I mean, you're, you're, you're the one who's going to be fighting that war, God forbid, if we have it, but how do you assess that threat? And then how do you plan on countering, uh, what is at least in a matter of numbers, increasing dominance by the PLAF? Cause it's a home game for them and an away game for you.
1: Right. So, um, as I mentioned um, earlier, you know, especially in the last uh, 10 to 15 years, you know, we've seen unprecedented um, advancements um, by the plaAF the uh, People's Liberation Army Air Force plaAF a- and um, and you rightly stated you know and and, and I'll, I'll even uh, take it one step further that um, you know they didn't invent it um, and in a lot of cases they stole it hear, hear. Uh, intellectual intellectual property you know was uh, taken um, by by them and uh, they um, reverse engineer and they produce uh, their capability um so um, that that's part of it um but um, the, the to to get to the the gist of your question of how, how do we um, plan on uh, countering this if if like you said god forbid we do have to fight this how are we gonna how are we going to do it well we train we train to it and we have a fairly good sense of what we uh what what their capabilities are uh, and we train to that. So when when we train, we train almost always outnumbered. Um, so you know we're, we're we'll be required in order to win uh, to a trip. You know it can't be a, a one a one versus one, and you know if you if you get the one, you win, right? It has to be like one versus eight, you know, two versus ten, and you still have to win. Uh, and we train to that. And um, you know I can report uh, that. That, that's normal. That's, that's a normal training uh, evolution that we do, that you, you train outnumbered. Um, and h- how do you do this, though? How do you win in that environment? Uh, you know, pe- people want to know. Well, uh, one, your your folks need to be proficient at their work, right? So uh, you, you can't just do this once a month and be good at it, right? It's just like if you're a golfer and you only golf once a month, you're not going to be that good uh, if you golf every weekend uh, or every day, you're going to be a lot better. So um, proficiency will will be uh, really important. Um, And then taking advantage of uh, some innovative technologies as well uh, that um, enable um, perhaps artificial intelligence. Um, So in a normal course of a day, you know, we collect an incredible amount of intelligence around the globe. And and if you want to focus in on on Indo-Pacific theater. We, we, we also collect an incredible amount of intelligence. Um, and in the past, we were required to have human beings looking at and listening to um, that intelligence uh, that we collected, um, which takes a lot of time. But what if, and we're starting to get into this more, what if you had machines looking at it? Um, and and um, as an example where you have um, on, your, on your phone, you have a facial recognition software or on your computer and you can, you can do a search for Ken Wilsbach on your computer and it'll find the photos, right? That, that's kind of artificial intelligence, but that, that's a very simple example of, hey, uh, system, go find me the targets, right? And instead of a human being have to, having to look at every single photograph that we took uh, from the day before, uh, and that may take a whole day just to look at one, you know, one set of photographs that, that we took. Uh, what if the machine went, hey, there's a target right here, right? Because it, it recognized it. Um, so that's an example of artificial intelligence um, that we're um, starting to employ uh, more and more. And then the last aspect is the command and control of those forces. Um, and uh, there's, there's a lot to command and control. Uh, as as uh, it's complicated um, but to, to boil it down in the, the simplest uh, in the simplest terms is having the right assets at the right time uh to be able to win the fight and that, that that's basically uh, what command and control is all about and uh, we fully anticipate that command and control will have to be conducted in a contested environment in other words your, our adversaries are going to try to take away our ability to talk with one another, uh, so we train to that, and uh, we have um, multiple systems so if if I wanted to get you a message, I could do a zoom call like this, I could send you a text, I could send you an email. Um, I could send you a letter, I could send you a UPS, a FedEx, uh, you name the company. I could, there's a lot of different ways that I could get a message to you. Well, we're doing the same thing with the comm system so that um, there's not just one thing that you have to take out. And so it's, it's a robust uh, comm system. It also includes some artificial uh, intelligence um, in the way that we can uh, uh, get the right asset the right time uh, to achieve the objective uh, that we're looking for. Uh, And and one thing that you talked about earlier, which I I actually want to go back to, uh, is you're exactly right. The other services, Army, Navy, Air Force, Marines, and um, now the Space Force um, are all innovating. And one of the innovations is this notion um, called a joint all-domain command and control. Uh, JADC2 is is the acronym. But um, the, the purpose of this is not just to deliver the air effect at the right um, place in the right time, but a joint effect. Um, so if you're trying to achieve objectives, you know, from, from the joint perspective, we, we actually don't really care which service creates the effect that achieves the objective. And sometimes... Maybe the Marines have the the, the most timely uh, solution, or perhaps the Army or the Navy. And um, so the the whole point of this JADC2 uh, is uh, to be able to uh, create um, enough dilemmas at a volume and pace uh, that the adversary is um, going to have a hard time dealing with and um, and, and and frankly winning. So um, this JADC2 is. Um, Something that we're really trying to work on uh, this year. Uh, we've had a number of experiments um, to advance this, and, and I have to tell you, things are things are going really well. A, a subcomponent of this is a is a system called Advanced Battle Management System. You may have heard it called ABMS. And in fact, we just uh, did an ABMS experiment on a recent exercise uh, that uh, we were doing. Um, it was a joint exercise that we were mostly around the island of Guam, um, but we're also, uh, some forces were here in Honolulu um, operating out of uh, Joint Base Pearl Harbor Hickam. And um, this ABMS system um, is the software and the associated hardware that goes with it, which allows the JADC2 concept uh, to take place. And uh, there was a it was a, basically a command center that we had set up um, here in Hawaii uh, that was able to manage uh, the information coming and going, uh, direct forces that were actually operating in, in and around uh, the island of Guam. Uh, and you know, a lot of people have said, well, what's the big deal? I can do that from my phone. But that's because you have cell and Wi-Fi. Uh, this was operating on its own Established, we, we established the network, not reliant on you know cell coverage or or Wi-Fi, but our, our own network uh, that we we set up, and so that's um, that's the difference in that. But it, it went it, uh, the experiment went really well, um, but that was a very long-winded um, answer uh, to your question about you know how we how we anticipate being able to, to compete and win.
0: Well, that was it was fascinating. You brought up uh, command and control, uh, what the Chinese call informationized warfare. Or they called that about a decade ago. Really was was designed not only on on their end to allow them to act in ways that we had been acting. Let's say since the Gulf War, which is uh, you know integrated use of sensors and targeting and and more precision uh, lethal use of of their munitions, but at the same time to deny it to us. So uh, it, it's it's interesting. I was able to have a conversation last year with your counterpart, Admiral Aquil. Lino, uh, head of Pacific fleet, who actually brought up the exact same thing, which was how do I communicate oh, on, you know, on the surface with my ships, if we don't have satellites. And he also had these different ideas in, in ways that they're innovating. So it's clear that it's a, it's a major focus for, for you all. I, I think it, it was also interesting. You mentioned, um, the, the joint, uh, all domain command and control, um, you know uh, the 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 marines are trying to think about how do they you know reclaim a, an amphibious role in the pacific the army's talking about um uh, you know precision sustained fires which you know, which for those who don't deal with this it means basically land based uh, rocketry and and being able to uh, do things as a land force as opposed to simply looking towards the air force or the navy but let's be honest given the size of your area of responsibility and just how long it takes to get from point a to point b a lot of the first response the 911 calls are going to come to the air force cuz you can get there faster than anyone else unless they happen to be there and they might be there but in a lot of places they're not going to be so are you are you comfortable with your with your numbers with do you have enough of what you need in order to do what you know you're going to have to do and probably get the first call to do a lot of it
1: yeah, I know. I think you're you're right about um, us being, um, you know, the first call in, in many cases. Although I will say, you know, the, uh, you know my friend um, Admiral Aquilino, will be out there. He'll be sailing ships, and, and there'll be submarines out there. And um, you know, my um, you know my counterparts uh, in the army. Uh, will will also um, be deployed in some places. And in fact, they're they're out there right now. I mean, the Army uh, is helping us out with base defense in, in Korea in Guam, um, but uh, Patriot and that and uh, and so um, General la Camera, you know, is also a good friend, uh, and 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 so are so are the other services. And so we, in fact, fact we meet frequently uh, to uh, do you know to have the discussion of. Hey, what can I do for you? you know, here's what you can do for me. Um, and so, there's a lot of discussion about uh, about that. And so, you know, I don't I don't want to, you know, o- overstate that they're all going to be out. They're they're all out out in the theater uh, doing the, you know, doing their part uh, to uh, help keep uh, the Indo Pacific free and open, which is you know ultimately our uh, our number one objective. Right now, um, but to uh, to uh, to address your question of you know h- how are we doing? I mean, I'm relatively satisfied with um, the forces that we have uh, to uh, do you know to do, do what we're going to be asked to do. Part um, part of that is is because we well, one we get asked that all the time by uh, the Pentagon. You know what, what else do you need? And you know we have a list of things that were that we we'd like to have. Uh, and, uh, we call that our integrated priority list. Uh, and, um, that, that goes through, uh, PACOM and it goes up, uh, also when it goes to the air force, um, as, as our parent service. And then it also goes to the office of the secretary of defense, OSD. Um, and, um, in upcoming budgets, you know, they, uh, they, um, take all of the combatant commands, integrated priority lists. And, you know, they, um, they either uh, fund them or they don't, um, and so there's there's certainly always uh, things that we would like uh, to have in order to execute our mission um, better. But um, for the most part, you know, based on what I anticipate being asked to do, um, the forces that we have available to us in theater, and then what we can bring in, you know, once uh, once uh, some kind of conflict or crisis occurs. You know we do have uh, quite a capability to mobilize and bring in additional forces, uh, and and so so that that is looking at it solely from the U.S. perspective. But but here's the really good news: it's our allies and partners. And when you think about when you think about the list of allies and partners that um, China has, or that North Korea has, or Russia but well, the list is relatively short and they don't have a, a, a big group of allies and partners. And we do, we do. And so um, that is a tremendous, uh, a tremendous uh, strength, um, because, you know, many, many of the nations that, that I, um, interact with, and I, I do this quite a bit. In fact, I'm traveling next week and we'll, we'll go see a few of them, but the, the, uh, The interesting thing is, is one, they have the same objective on their minds that we have on ours, which is a free and open Indo-Pacific theater. So, uh, the mutual interest, it's there, Um, and the way to go about um, achieving that um, is also, uh, you know, pretty common. And when you're an adversary for our for for our side, uh, when you're an adversary for our side, you actually have to think through. Uh, the calculus of, hey, if I if I start um, some kind of conflict or I have some sort of crisis, you know with, say the United States, it's actually not just with the United States, it's with all those uh, others uh, that are like-minded. Uh, and uh, what's encouraging to me as I interact with my counterparts, um, I find that um, they they say to me frequently, hey, you you all are our partner of choice. you know we we want to figure out how to be, Uh, more interoperable with you. Uh, We want to integrate with you. These are things that they say. And of course, then then we we take them up on it and we do exercises with them so that we can realize that and achieve uh, those. And and certainly, you know, we're more interoperable with some than with others. Uh, We're integrated with um, a few, um, but um, everybody wants to get... A little bit better that, that I talk to, and so that's that's really encouraging. And so that that uh, that is our uh, that is our real strength, I think, in the Indo-Pacific is. It's not just the United States; it's the allies and partners as well.
0: It's a huge point. You actually um, uh, anticipated the question I wanted to ask, which was, you know, who are some of those those key partners? Uh, Japan, uh, obviously, you spent a lot of time in South Korea, the Australians. Um, w- w- uh, not that you know, asking you to rank them in any way, but where are we really well integrated with a partner and who are the partners that you see becoming more integrated with us over time?
1: Yeah. So one, I would say, you know, the key, the the key ally is all of them. (laughs) And that very diplomatic answer. strength, but the strength in numbers is, is, I mean, if, if you think about it, if you're, if you're the, uh, Communist uh, the the Chinese Communist Party, and you know you're you're looking at this, you know I mean it's almost like a coalition. We don't call it that, but that's that's kind of what you have is this large group of nations that are united in, hey, we want a free and open Pacific, and you know we take issue with uh, some of the things that the Chinese are doing in the theater with, you know taking territory that never was historically theirs of blocking. Um, blocking, you know, democratic principles that they promised to allow happen, like we saw in Hong Kong, um, like using economic coercion uh, to uh, ensure that the Chinese way is implemented, even though it's not uh, the desire, the sovereign desire of that that nation. Um, and and you can, you just keep going on, on the, the things that we're seeing. And so when you're China and you look at this um, body of nations that um, make it known that um, that kind of behavior isn't acceptable here. That we want a free and open Indo-Pacific, and we want it to be in accordance with international law. Uh, that that's something that they ha- they have to uh, they they have to calculate as they decide how they want to implement their strategy. Um, but with respect to you know countries, uh, we we exercise frequently with uh, Japan and Korea uh, with. Uh, with Australia, uh, we we have um, operations going on right now with uh, New Zealand. Uh, we uh, we also um, India. We have operations ongoing with India. Frequently, uh, we have some exercises with them uh, in the future. Uh, Uh, Indonesia, Singapore. We're we're, uh, constantly doing exercises with uh, Singapore. They have bases in the continental United States where they're side by side uh, with um, airmen uh, there. Uh, Thailand exercise you know, frequently uh, with them, and, and um, I'm sure I'm missing uh, some, but every single uh, even even Mongolia, we 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 talk, I talk with Mongolia a lot, and we don't have uh, necessarily that many uh, plan exercises, but we do smaller subject matter expert uh, visits. And so, you know, I and there, there's other, there's many other countries uh, that we have relationships, and while we might not do, you know, huge red flag exercises with them, um, we still invite them perhaps to come uh, watch red flag uh, and be an observer. We have subject matter expert um, exchanges um, with all of them, and and to the degree that they're interested, and the degree that um, that uh, they're able. Um, we, we welcome everyone and all. And so that's why I say uh, the, the key ally is all of them.
0: It, it, makes, it makes perfect sense. I'm sure each one would be happy to hear that, to know that they're part of that bigger team and that they're working together, not just with us, but with each other in, in many ways and learning from each other.
1: Right. In fact, I, I host a, um, a um, VTC um, that uh, we'll, we'll have again uh, here next month. Um, but it's just all of the air chiefs um, in the Indo-Pacific um, and some others. We actually invite uh, some other air chiefs from not even not even from the Indo-Pacific, but who have interest in the Pacific uh, will participate. And uh, what we do is we we um, just put out a, a list of topics and we allow the group to also um, Submit topics, and then then we get together and we talk about them. And so, uh, in the past, we've talked about, uh, as an example, you know, how to mitigate COVID and still be ready, uh, because we don't have the option of okay, we're just going to have an Air Force shutdown and everybody's going to go home and you know, we'll we'll just pick it up when when the, the the disease is not a threat. We actually have to figure out how not to get the disease but still remain ready um, and uh, ready to fight tonight is what I tell our folks, and so. Um, so we had a discussion with more than 20 air chiefs, um, several weeks back about how, how are they doing it? We shared best practices, uh, and, um, it was really a fruitful, uh, fruitful conversation. And that, that's another example where we all get together, uh, and share. And so I'm, I'm, uh, very frequently, you know, sending text messages to my counterparts. Uh, you know, if there's a storm that runs through their country, you know, I'll, I'll say, Hey, do you need anything? uh and uh, they're doing the same thing to me i I get a text message seems like a few times a week from from my counterparts from the other countries of just checking in how are things going Uh, so the relationships are built and they're strong you know despite the fact that we're not traveling as much as we used to we're using technology kind of like what we're doing here uh with the zoom call to to uh to be able to retain and and build the relationships
0: Um, It was interesting you mentioned your your mantra, uh, ready to fight tonight. Um, You spent a lot of time uh, dealing with Korea and and been on the peninsula. Uh, If history teaches us one thing, we have a fairly good uh, set of data points that um, North Korea challenges new leaders. And they challenged new U.S. leaders. They challenged President Bush. They challenged President Obama. They challenged President Trump. Um, it looks like we will, will likely have a new leader in, in January. Uh, and even if we don't, we're, it's still going to be a, a new administration, a second administration. Um, are, are you ready for Korea? Are you ready for the unexpected? What we can expect is the unexpected from the North Koreans. And how worried are you that it's just getting closer and closer to crossing the line one day that, that things really, they, they, it's not just a provocation. It goes beyond provocation.
1: Right. So um, I I think you're exactly right. Um, And I look at it maybe, maybe from a different perspective of challenging the leader. And what we've noticed is that North Korea has um, cycles. They, they, they go through and they're, they're in, uh, they're in. They're kind of in a, a a low threat cycle right now. In other words, I, I call it they're they char- they're doing a charm offensive right now. They've they've been they've been uh, it's been pretty quiet. You haven't seen the bellicose rhetoric. Um, they haven't uh, shot off uh, any missiles lately. Um, you're not hearing the threats um, around the region of using uh, their their nuclear weapons. It's been relatively quiet. Um, but you don't have to go back very far. You know, like 2017, three years ago, it was completely different. And if you study North Korea, and I know many of the listeners probably have, if you go back, you can see this cycle repeat itself, you know, almost, uh, you know, through the history of that country of they'll, you know, they'll they'll, they'll have a, a period where they're abrasive and then they're not abrasive and abrasive and not abrasive. Um, and it, it it probably is the way that they uh, achieve uh, some level of objectives, and so uh, we we go we go into the future with our eyes wide open that um, perhaps that could change. I hope it doesn't, and I hope they uh, continue uh, uh, to not to not be as threatening as they have been in the past. Um, but as we internally uh, talk about what we will be called to do in the event that uh, things. Uh, go the way that you suggested, and we, we are called to to um, to have a conflict with North Korea that we're ready to to do that. and I, I can report that we are. Uh, and so um, uh, and you know I, I hope and pray that we never have to do that, but if we do, uh, our intent is to win. And uh, we we um, in the United States Air Force trained uh, trained train to that um, quite seriously. And the good news here is we're doing that training with our Republic of Korea allies um, every single day. Um, and and I'm, I'm focused in on the, the Air Force, but um, you know, I, I can't, can't let this question pass without saying it, it's joint. So my uh, Navy, Marine, Army, and Space Force uh, brothers and sisters are right there uh, with me. Um, and uh, we will have um, the support of our joint voice, our joint forces uh, to be able uh, to execute that.
0: Well, I think it, it's encouraging to hear because uh, certainly thinking from the political perspective, we always feel behind the eight ball, right? That, that we know they're going to do something. We don't know exactly what. And it's always a question of how do we react. But knowing that you are there. That all you, um, all you folks, in terms of a joint force—not just the Air Force, but as you said, everyone who's out there with Indo-Pacific Command and the Allies—I I think is crucial. Um, I know we've got a hard stop coming up soon. I, I sort of wanted to ask you a little bit about technology, but then I had a, a, a final question, a, a brief one, but maybe just really quickly on, on technology. What is, if you had to list, you know, the, the, the single most or the top two or three most transformative technologies for the aerial domain it, over the next generation, what are they? And then I've just got one quick follow-up for you.
1: Yeah, you bet. So I know we've talked, uh, you've seen in the media, um, in the last year or two about hypersonics and, you know, what, you know, some people, you know, I know a lot of people know what it is, but a lot of people might not understand why, why we're interested in this. Um, but you know, it, it's, it really takes away, um, you know, wh- whoever's trying to defend against, um, hypersonics, it just takes away the time element because the weapons are traveling, um, so quickly. Um, that you don't, you may not have enough time uh, to defend yourself, and so hypersonics um, and the distance that they can go um, in in a given time um, is uh, is really a game changer, and so uh, that is something um, that that I'm very interested in, um, and then uh, associated with that though is um, continuing to uh, acquire uh, stealthy uh, platforms. Uh, that can operate in that contested environment, uh, maybe not with impunity, uh, but close to that, right? And so, uh, being able to get inside, um, you know, a defended airspace, uh, and but be there undetected, uh, so that you can create effects uh, of of your choosing uh, that will um, incur costs uh, to the adversary. Uh, and then uh, we talked about it earlier, but artificial intelligence and the, the, what the artificial intelligence uh, does for us is it it points us uh, to the solutions that give us those dilemmas that happen at a pace and a volume that the adversary just can't uh, contend with. And when you, when you take in uh, stealth, uh, speed, and then uh, the ability of artificial intelligence to be able... Uh, to point you in the right direction without having to have um, this very long analysis time. Uh, it, the the machines do it for you. Uh, so the analysis is done for you and then it points you right. Okay, here's the target, go get it. Right. And then you have the speed with hypersonics or, or the stealth uh, to be able to get inside, uh, inside of their defended airspace and create the effect. So um, those, those three things I think are of uh, the, the three things that I would say are the the technology that that I really want, and then we've talked about it earlier in the in the podcast. But the communication system that allows you to command and control all that uh, that that's uh, right there with uh, those three technologies.
0: Thank you, sir. Clearly, uh, again, the Air Force leading uh, at the you know with with the these new technologies, these cutting edge technologies, uh, it's going to be fascinating going forward. I, I have a, I have a question about the past and this is the last question. Um, I've been able to ask it to, uh, dozens of, of your, um, uh, your colleagues and, and predecessors, including most recently Chief of Staff General Brown. asked him, I've asked uh, General Carlisle, one of your predecessors at Pacific Air Command, uh, General Breedlove, who was the Vice Chief, go on and on. Um, and I will tell you before I ask you the question, not to put the pressure on, but that every single person has given the same answer, just, just to let you know. Every awesome. single person has given the same answer. And the question is very simple. If you could fly any fighter, from any time in history, any era, which would that fighter be? Easy one. P-51. 100%. Every single... Why, why for you? Actually, when I asked General Brown, this was just two weeks ago for a Hoover uh, webinar that we did, um, he had a, a fantastic story about the Tuskegee Airmen, what it meant to him climbing in there. Um, but everyone has a different answer on the P-51, but everyone says a P-51. What, what is it for you?
1: Well, it made such an impact... Um, during World War II, uh, and uh, the other thing is, and, and, and it is so like accelerate, change, or lose that General Brown is, is talking about because uh, the air airframe was uh, designed and built and tested in a very short amount of time, and then they they fielded it, uh, and so it it, uh, it it was just one of those game changers, and uh, you know that uh, you know at the time you know, it was primarily in the European theater. Um, the the, Nazi, the, you know, the Nazis had nothing that could compete with it, uh, and it allowed it allowed us to be able to really um, execute our strategy um, that we uh, hadn't had to that point. Um, but uh, you know, if you've been, and, and by the way, I had a chance to fly in one once at an air show in the back seat, and I didn't get to actually fly it, but um, the, uh, the the man who owned it um, let me ride along with him. And um, when I got out of it, I was giddy. I mean, it was like <laughs> I can't believe I just got to do that. But the sound of it, the smells—it's um, very, it's very uh, small cockpit. It's very tight. And, and uh, you know, I know in the '40s, you know, uh, you know Americans were smaller back then. Um, but uh, even me—I'm not that big of a person—but it was cramped and noisy, uh, and uh, just makes you appreciate uh, all that. Um, you know, the, the greatest generations did with that, that airframe. Um, but it, it's just, I mean, it's just a beautiful machine. Uh, and, uh, and uh, it's, I don't know, it's just, it's my favorite airplane of all time. And I, I've been blessed to be able to fly so many airplanes and still that's my favorite one.
0: Oh, That's amazing. Well, well, thank you for that, for the story. Uh, I know we're at the end of time. Um, thank you for your service, for the service of, of the men and women of the Air Force, Pacific Air Forces, uh, for what you do. It, it is not an easy job, and it's become a lot harder. We're just grateful you took time out of your, your schedule to join us on the Pacific Century, and we hope that when we can all travel freely again, you'll, you'll come out and, and visit us at Hoover.
1: I would love that. Thanks, Misha. I, I really enjoyed my time with you, and I'm I just um, so thankful that uh, we had a chance to, to chat, and, and I will um, endeavor uh, to try to make it out to uh, Hoover as soon as COVID allows.
0: That would be great. So for the Pacific Century and my co-host John Yu, I'm Misha Oslin. Bye-bye.
1: podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society. For more information about our work and to hear more of our podcasts or see our video content, please visit hoover.org.